Welcome once again to By Grace. We are truly thrilled that all of you are here to worship with us. If you have your Bible with you, I would normally invite you to the book of Galatians, where we are going verse by verse through Galatians, but today we're going to sink our teeth into Acts 10 for some background uh, for the discussion as it moves forward in Galatians. So please, if you will, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Book of Acts, chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry, wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time saying, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, and they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. 
please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather this day in this place, we do so with a desire to honor you, with a desire to know you, with a desire to serve you and your purposes. Father, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would, would stoop down to meet with us, that you would bring your word to life. Lord, this is not a book about men. This is a book that you have given us that we might know you, love you, serve you, worship in the fullness of our whole being. So come, Lord, give us of your spirit. Give us eyes that we might see and ears that we would hear your voice. Lord, you know we live in a world that's so noisy. Help us, oh Lord, this morning, this day, this hour, to hear your voice distinct from all others, that you would be glorified and we would be changed. Come, O oh Lord, and do this mighty work, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people agree. Amen. So as we are going through the book of Galatians, it, we've spent so far the majority of our time looking at the Apostle Paul, understanding his conversion, understanding the dramatic nature of it, and we've been laying out timelines to try and understand what's going on, when is this letter written, why is this letter written, what is Paul's relationship to the churches of Galatia. We spent our time last week remembering again and afresh that sound doctrine preserves the power and potency of the gospel for the daily lives of God's people. When we consider these great doctrines of orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right belief and right living, right choosing, right action, we begin to remember that as the people of God, we are called and empowered by God to proclaim this gospel, this gospel that is not about what we would do for God, but the one true gospel that is about what God in Christ has done for us. So as we've explored these themes and begun to, to gain momentum, it is easy for us to remember this letter and see it only in Paul's eyes. But one of the great truths is that Paul does not do his ministry in isolation. Nor is this massive paradigm shift from one nation as the people of God to the people of God within all nations. That monumental shift takes place in its practical outworking over a period of time. We call it the apostolic age where we're transitioning, and you can see these transitions. Well, certainly Peter's experience in Acts 10 is a tip of a spear that God had promised from long ago that is being worked out. It is no longer that the Jewish nation has been entrusted with this message of messianic deliverance. 
Now, now that message has been given in such a way that it is to overflow to the nations. Piece by piece, moment by moment, relational development by spectacular moment, and so forth. So it is important for us to understand that Peter and Paul have overlapped in their experience of this unfolding moment that they have met before. Remember, within the first three years of Paul's conversion, he's in Jerusalem, and who does he hang out with for a couple of weeks? But Peter, we saw last week that at the end of Acts 11, that in Paul's second apostolic journey to Jerusalem, he's again hanging out with Peter. The, the small group grows a little bit, and there are some other names that we saw that are in that moment. But it is essential if we're to understand the heartbeat of Galatians 2, which is where right doctrine and right action are merged and failed and put back together in the, in the company of grace, Peter and Paul have an ongoing relationship. Not one that jeopardizes, here's the fancy term, the Apostle Paul's apostolic authority. Remember, we spent a couple weeks on the independence that Paul has, that he's not Peter's subject, that he didn't get his gospel and taught by Peter, that, that Jesus was the one who not only gave him the message, but commanded him to carry it. But it's done in relationship. And it's a reminder to us that no one should be an individual Christian on their own. That we need each other. Not because they will meet all our needs, but because we need each other to testify to what Christ has done in meeting our needs. So there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. No lone wolf ministry. But it's also true that there are times where you'd love to be together, but the Lord has called you somewhere with a purpose to do some things. But if we don't understand Peter's experience of this moment, then we will probably make some bad conclusions about what's happening in the rest of Galatians 2. So I want us to, to be able to dive in and move into this moment at Cornelius' invitation to understand some of this background. So we're not going to cover this as thoroughly as we did when we were going through Acts a number of years ago, but we are going to look at this experience through Peter's eyes. If you're Peter, how do you think and how do you feel, how do you understand, and how do you experience this monumental paradigm shift about who are the Lord's people? Who are your partners in the gospel? So let's jump in. We see at the beginning of two, chapter two of Galatians, the first three words, 14 years later. That's what we're going to do out of Galatians this morning. And we're going to say what happened that was significant in Peter's life 
that we can highlight to understand. Because as Paul is referencing that in his letter, those churches know what he's talking about. They know Peter, they've met Peter, they understand these stories. And let's be honest, when a bunch of fellas get together, we're as interested in retelling old stories as we are catching up on whatever's current. Sometimes we'd rather not talk about what's current and just laugh at the same jokes and enjoy the same memories. In this moment, when he says 14 years later, Peter's experience here rises to the forefront. So let's try and wrap our heads around this moment. At Caesarea, we're told in Acts 10, as Luke records it for us, there's a man named Cornelius, and he is a centurion of what is known as the Italian cohort. And this is significant only insofar as the entire group of men, group of soldiers, Roman soldiers, that this guy is overseeing is not from lots of places. All of them are from Italy. So that there is this kind of ethnic or cultural unity that they have, but they're outsiders to Palestine. They don't live in this Jerusalem, Judea, Israel. They're, this is not where they are likely from. So they're not just Gentiles in a sense that they're not Jewish. They're all, in a sense, outsiders from all of the developments, all of the culture, all of the expectations beyond what they've been shared with, right? So you can share it and explain it, but it's not a lived experience for them. And so in Caesarea, Cornelius is a wealthy, a powerful, and an influential leader, one who leads this part of the army. But more than that, we learn about his character and his common practice in verse 2. He's a devout man. A devout man does not necessarily mean a believer in the way you and I might speak. Because you could be a devout Muslim, you could be a devout Jew. In this case, he actually is what is often referred to as a God-fearing Gentile. He's not yet sort of converted to Judaism, but he is praying to Yahweh. He is seeking to follow God as we know the true and living God. And that's the center of this story. It's going to be much less about his power or his influence or his military position. It's really going to be a lot about his character and the ordinary piety. That's a phrase we don't use often enough, isn't it? The ordinary piety of faithfully following God. In fact, I would go so far as to say, we get a tilted perspective of the brilliance and importance of the ordinary when we read Scripture. Because most of the time, what's happening in Scripture is the recounting of the extraordinary, the unusual. Everybody knows something, you don't have to write it down. It's what everybody doesn't know that you have to preserve and pass on and hand down. And so part of what happens here in Acts 10 is that you will see both Cornelius and Peter 
going about the ordinary elements of a day that is, you know, framed as submitted to God. What does an ordinary day in the life of a God-fearing Gentile and of an apostle look like? It's going to be filled with prayer. Don't, don't miss that in this chapter. They have ordinary and perceivably daily practices of surrendering their schedule and their time and their heart to the Lord for his examination and, as we see, his direction. So, he's a devout man. He fears Yahweh, and he does so in leading not just himself in the secret confines of a hidden prayer closet, but in fact, his whole household is fully aware of who this man is and what he does and what he loves. It's also worth noting in, in verse 2 that he is a generous man. He gives his money to the people in need and in service generously. He gives his alms. And he prays, here's key word, continually. Does that mean he can't have business meetings? He's not sitting at the table with his, with his children for supper? No, it means that his relationship with God is one where they are in constant relationship. He doesn't do his religious stuff and then go about the rest of his day. He's not putting religious quarters in the vending machine to appease whatever bad things would happen if he didn't. When we talk about God as a consuming fire, it doesn't mean that you become unable to live in society. You have to retreat to the monastery. No. It means that in every moment you're seeking the Lord's direction, his guardianship, his protection. And in faith, everything that you're doing is viewed as his. Everything that you have, you are a steward of. So here's Cornelius, who's seeking to serve and love God. And then in that process, he's going about his day, and about the ninth hour, we're told in verse 3, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And I always read it that way because I'm taking a breath to see if God's going to repeat the name. Right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The rebuke is coming in the repetition of name. In this case, it's Cornelius. We're good. What do you need? <laughs> but here's an extraordinary event, but it's built on ordinary daily life with the breath of God transforming it. So, don't get excited that if you come to Christ, every moment of every day is going to be spectacular. I can assure you, it is not. But that does not mean that there is never awesome, that there is never profound. Those things also accompany a life lived in faith, the faithful life but it's built in this ordinary piety. 
So here's an angel of God, a messenger of God, who is sent to Cornelius, and Cornelius is called directly by name, and then his response is recorded for us. I appreciate that Luke is pretty careful pretty often to give us the motivation or the reaction internally in the characters as they experience this. And so here, Cornelius has this angel of God standing before him, speaking to him, and we are told that he is in terror, which is a good remembrance for us. Because if we think of angels as floating babies in heaven, like the New Year's baby in a top hat, we're going to misunderstand the lethality of these men or angels who are sent. They're intimidating. We're told in Scripture that they wield swords. Like the host of heaven is not something that you would feel ease in the immediate presence of. Have you ever walked in a room and men had like machine guns all around you? And they're, they're holstered. They're not coming for you. They're not pointed at you. But there's still a little bit of like, all right, easy boys, easy, we're good. I mean you no harm. When you meet just one angel, it's more intimidating than a battalion of soldiers with guns pointed at you. Because this is not ordinary. And they are clearly not from here. So he's right to have a sense of terror. But remember, this is a military man. He's not intimidated by armies. Like this guy's seen battle most likely. And the thing that terrorizes him is an angel. Angels are supposed to be cuddly, right? Oh, no. So here's the angel, here's the response, and his response is, uh, what is it, Lord? He speaks as a good soldier, right? All right, you're in charge, what do you need? <laughs> Don't kill me. And then the angel says, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. What you've done, why you've done it, they have lofted as smoke almost to the very throne room of heaven and have been received as an offering to Yahweh. Do you guys take it for granted that the God who created all things hears you whine, hears you request, hears your desperation? Here's your confession. His life and his heart have been translated into something by God's grace that is receivable in the throne room of heaven. And as such, God is going to give him an extraordinary gift. He's going to make himself known in an incredibly powerful way. But there's some work to do to make arrangements. Here are the arrangements. Verse 5, send some fellas down to Joppa and bring back Simon. And apparently there's lots of Simons. So we're not talking about ordinary Simons. We're talking about Simon the Rock. Go, go get this particular one. So Simon and then this nickname. And in fact, 
he's going to be lodged in a house owned by, wait for it, Simon. But how many Simons are there? Well, enough that his job has to be attached to his name as well as his geographic location. Apparently, lots of Simons. So Peter, Simon Peter, is staying with Simon the Tanner, and not that Tanner, the one whose house is by the sea. You know, biblical GPS is a little hard at times. And then we're told that the angel spoke to him, gave him the instruction, and then is departing. So what do you do if you're Cornelius? You obey, right? You didn't get smote. Is that the past tense of, of smite? Smoted? Smited? Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Instead, he got invited. And that invitation is a call to action and preparation. So he goes. He grabs two of his most loyal, most trusted servants and then gives them some military cover, right? He's not sending them on their own. Here's a bodyguard. And he sends them off to do exactly as he was instructed. In fact, we're told in verse 8 that he hides nothing from them, right? Having related everything to them, he sends them on their way to Joppa. And then we cut scene. So that's the background of Cornelius and this moment. And then we're going to see... Now, from Peter's perspective, how this begins. So we're told, verse 9, starting over, it's the next day, because it's a couple days' journey to get from Joppa to Caesarea. And so, it's the next day, as they, who's they, this trio that Cornelius has sent, were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter, that's Simon Peter, yes, that Peter, he goes up on the rooftop or the housetop, and this is about the sixth hour, so it's the middle of the day, and he goes there, as his custom was, to pray. It's a way of avoiding distraction and trying to commune with God. In fact, I wonder if there are challenges to your daily time with God because of the location you try to do it in. I remember in college, there were times where I tried to do it in my bed at the end of the day. Guess what happened more often than I want to admit? Snoring, I'm told by my beloved roommate. Uh, hey, Kev, you need to find a better way, bro. You read and fall asleep, and then I listen to you muttering for a while about the things you're trying to talk to God about. Maybe it's an environmental problem that you need to relocate, and maybe it's a chronological time problem, and you need to do it at a different time. Sometimes it's just the setting. So here's Peter, goes up on the rooftop, as is custom, and he starts praying, and we're told it's the middle of the day. And what happens to us in the middle of the day? You ever get hungry in the middle of the day? Yeah, so you're having your devotion and you want to commune with God and, and, and then you're hungry. <laughs> totally happens. So he's up there and his tummy's a little rumbly. And in that hunger, there are others who are there and they care for him well and serve him well. And so they go to prepare the meal, we're told. And as such, 
It's a pre-meal nap. Don't most of us eat and then fall asleep? That's your diabetic warning of the day. If you do, sorry, I do not have a medical license. But there are many times where I've had Thanksgiving dinner and realized I ate way too much and the only thing I want to do is fall asleep to football. Here he is in the middle of the day, hungry. And he doesn't fall asleep. He actually falls into a trance. This is a spiritual reality. It's a way of talking about a spiritual transformation, a spiritual scene, a spiritual vision. It's a particular version of those. And as such, what happens next is not happening in the material world as we understand it. It's happening much more akin to a dream state. But what he sees in this vision is coming from God, and it's designed to guide, direct, and guard him in the events that are about to unfold. So what does he see? What's the vision? What's the trance? Well, in this trance, he sees the heavens opened and something like a giant sheet, and it's held in its four corners. So if you've ever carried leaves on a tarp, you know how this works. It's usually two of us if it's a big tarp and a lot of leaves, but you're holding the corners and you're walking together and the corners are higher because the the weight of the things shifts to the middle. This is a similar image to what's happening here. The, The heavenly veil is opened and this sheet is lowered down by the four corners But it is set before him for his inspection? Hang on, let's find out. This sheet descends and centered in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. That's a weird trance, right? Isn't that a weird vision? Why are all these animals and reptiles and birds? And I always wonder which ones, right? But then we're going to find out and get a pretty good guess as to which ones are here. Because not only is there this pile of reptiles, animals, and birds being lowered down together, a command is given. Listen to the simplicity of the commands in verse 13. The voice speaks. Rise, Peter. It's not a lot of ambiguity there, right? He's laying down. Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. And I'm like, barbecue? Word. Right? Like, I'm down. Harold, did you make sauce for this? Like, that's, that's what I want to know. Right? Like, dinner time, heck yeah, I'm hungry anyway. And so there's this part of me, when I read moments like this, sometimes if I'm moving too quickly through Scripture, I can say, well, he was hungry, so how do we really know this is a heavenly thing? Maybe this is a belly thing. One of the ways we know that's not is first, the Holy Spirit is doing this. 
Second, we'll see the fallout from all of it. But even more importantly, the rise, kill, and eat command is something Peter's rejecting, not something he's welcoming. If it's chicken wings, then he's excited and would want to eat. But in this trance, what he's seeing is detestable to him. Listen to the reaction in verse 14. And sometimes we kind of sanitize this too much. But Peter's response is, by no means, which is a very emphatic phrase. This is a very emphatic phrase. This is a visceral, no, I am against that. This is not, I'm going to say no to that. Do you want a second helping of pie? No. I mean, I do, but no. That's not what's happening right here. This is like being served your dog's lawn litter on a plate. That's how Peter's reacting to this. No, I don't want to eat that. What are you talking about? No way. By no means. And then he justifies his reaction, explaining it. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So what is in the sheet represents food from animals that are restricted to that kosher diet. That national command that Israel has in its heritage of having clean food and unclean food and all the restrictions and commands of the law that govern what you eat and what you don't eat and who gets what portion of what sacrifice and all of those things. So Peter's response is more than preference. It's not George Bush getting offered broccoli and I'm the president, I don't eat broccoli. It's not, oh, nah, I'm, this is an a la carte salad, and I, I don't like the romaine lettuce. I'm an iceberg guy. I'm going to put that. No, 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 no. This is, would you eat dung? No. Okay, that's how he feels about it. These are off limits, unclean, not fit. For Jesus' people, for God's people, for Jewish people. So his response is, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. It's another way of saying, I know better. No way. That would be an affront to God. And I wonder if at this moment, Peter is trying to figure out who's giving this vision. Is this a scheme not from heaven, but from heaven's great adversary? Is this a temptation? If it's a temptation, Peter does really well. He rejects it all three times. Rise, kill, and eat. No. Rise, kill, and eat. No. Peter, rise, kill, and eat. No, no, no. That's what we're told. And then Peter gets the understanding. He gets the insight in verse 15. What God has made clean, 
do not call common. Now hang on. For Peter, this is world shifting. What he's being told in this trance is that everything you know about dietary restriction, I'm changing. All the loyalty that you have to your mom and your dad and your wife that talks about what is right in our home, what is right in our household, how do we worship God? How do we serve God? This is not a little pesky checklist that you have to pay attention to. This is God Almighty telling you the kind of worship that pleases and displeases him. The kind of use and purpose behind some animals created for some purposes and other animals created for other purposes. Some are holy, right, set apart, consecrated to be treated and understood and used and related to differently. And some are for common use. And, and that word common use has several connotations in Scripture and in the, the Greek era outside of Scripture. And sometimes it means communal. This is a communal use. This is kind of for everybody or for anybody. Sometimes common use refers to the profane. There are things that are profane and they would be called common or sometimes more often unclean. Do you want to eat unclean food? We're not talking about health inspector issues. Unclean food. And sometimes it's ordinary. It's common, it's communal, it's profane. Sometimes it's just ordinary. Everybody eats that. We don't. And so part of your identity is tied to your obedience and the motivation for your obedience is to serve God and love God in the ordinary, everyday events of life. So here's Peter. Might not be the most sophisticated guy on the planet, but do you think he loves God? Do you think he knows what it is to say, I yield my life to you, O Lord? I mean, his calling as a disciple in Luke 5 is one of those anchor truths in my heart. The boat are, is filled with fish. And Peter walks away from it entirely in a new identity with a new purpose. And he has everything he could ever want in that boat, all that the world would have to offer him. And he walks away from it to follow Jesus. So here is a committed follower of God. He has his falls, right? Denials, difficulties, confusions. But also, how many times does Jesus say, Peter, what you have just said, more insightful than you know. In fact, it's a heavenly revelation. I am the Messiah, and you don't really know what that means yet, and you haven't understood it fully, as if any of us do. But Peter is, for all his passion, eager to serve Yahweh, right? And so here, the vision and the voice 
are offering him something that he most likely does not feel the need to re-examine. Right? There are doctrines that we have at the core of who we are that we don't feel the need to re-examine because they're the foundational building blocks. But here, what God's doing in this apostolic age is transformative to the traditions that Peter grew up in and the cultural reasons behind some of what's happening. So here we see through Peter's eyes what faithful living can be living, looking like. This is part of what faithful living looks like in its ordinary piety. He just went up to pray while lunch is being made. And then the vision. There's another piece to this that I think is helpful. As the voice speaks a thunderous rebuke, do not call common what God has made, what's the word? Clean. Don't call it unclean. If God has called it clean. And here I'm, I'm imagining Peter in this moment who's like, I mean, I know what Leviticus says. I don't have to be the most sophisticated guy in the room, but like, I, that's that, and that's that, and that's that, and those birds are off limits, and those animals are off limits, and the reptile. Lord, what are you doing? What does this mean? There's a very important element to this. When the vision is done, Peter still doesn't understand it. Just because you've had an experience does not mean that you understand its true purpose, that you understand its true import in your life. Notice, and I want you to take courage from this, that Peter, verse 17, is still inwardly perplexed. What, what does this mean? What didn't happen in the vision is that Peter grabbed the knife, walked up, killed the animal, and barbecued it. He did not do that. Sometimes we think, oh, following Christ should be easy. There's, there's no difficulties. You just plug and play. This is the right thing. You do it. As if we were capable of that on our own anyway. But here there's a mystery and a, a complication, a messiness and a very deeply rooted childhood understanding of all things that God is speaking to and moving. I also want to say, pastorally, you don't have to understand the, quote, reason, close quote, behind all the events of your life. I know so many Christians who are labored and burdened in these, I wonder what that meant. What was the lesson there? As if all of our life could be reduced down to a lived out version of Aesop's fables. You are more complex than that. The world is more complex than that. And hallelujah, the purposes of God are both clear and opaque. 
They are seen, proclaimed, known, studyable, understandable, figureoutable, and there's a whole series of these things that are not for us. You don't have to figure out why so-and-so got cancer. How many times have people, I just don't know what God's doing. Okay, he does. Right? So we come in compassion, we come in hope, we come in service. But you don't have to figure out the purpose or, or lesson behind every moment of your life. In fact, one of the most faithful things you can do in the midst of your mess, in the midst of your sin indulged, is to stop and say, Lord, you, not me, I've been doing me. Will you heal? Will you fix? Will you transform? Will you teach me how to confess and share? Lord, no more me. You. You. And you can lean into that in confession and repentance. And then after this is what you're on topic with God about, you ask this pregnant question. What is the next faithful thing I can do? What is the next faithful thing that I could do? Doesn't matter how faithless you've been. Doesn't matter how far or much you have run. Hear the invitation of God to say, turn and receive my grace. Not just for the first time, but all the time in this continual devotion and service and submission to the will of God and the move of God and the purposes of God. So here's Peter who's experienced this radically weird and theologically more than questionable vision. Peter has learned a thing or two about, and I probably don't want to give my first reaction that really doesn't go well in uh, the autobiographies of the Gospels. For posterity, I need to wait here. But God's providence and timing are absolute. Because as he's perplexed, having had this vision, it's at just the right time here that, uh, that, that the men come to the house. Notice 17, while Peter is inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that had seen meant, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, in other words, men, they stopped for directions, and they're now standing at the gate, and they call out, is Simon called Peter lodging here? Is he dwelling here? Is he here? Verse 19, while Peter was still pondering the vision, the Holy Spirit speaks clearly to him. Behold, three men are looking for you. Listen to this verb, rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. I hate 
that I need those astricted thoughts, right? I would love to believe that God would say and I would do and not need to be told at times, hey, brother, like, don't question this one. This is true, right, good. Don't wait on it. Don't hem and haw about it. Yield now because it's going to be harder to yield later. Just don't hesitate. Just go. And I love it because it's not undermining the legitimacy of Peter mentally trying to figure out what this heavenly orthodoxy thing is about. He's told clearly, don't stop and get lost in your thoughts. Do this right thing because I have told you to do it. Don't hesitate. The timing here is providential. It's heavenly sent. So here's Peter, still pondering, with clear description. Rise, go down, accompany them, for I have sent them. All right, well, if you sent them and you're the one speaking, first of all, thank you that it's not a vision. I appreciate the auditory nature of this command. As if all we needed was to hear the voice of God say it, and then we'd clearly do everything he said. But here's Peter given some very clear instruction, and so he does. He goes down, and he welcomes the men, and he confesses exactly who he, I'm the one that you are looking for. How does he know he's the one that they're looking for? Is it more because they said his name or because God sent him? Or maybe the two work together really well. What is the reason for your coming? And they give this speech. I love this speech. Cornelius, I warn you, he's a centurion, but he's an upright and God-fearing man. Wait, what do you mean he's a centurion? I mean, he puts him in the army working for Caesar. But don't worry, he's a believer. Okay, uh, skeptical heart would be mine. But he's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. <laughs> One of the things that is important for us to understand in this moment is the nature and depth of the isms involved here. The suspicion that comes with us and them. Notice that it's God who told Peter. It's God who told Cornelius. It's these trusted servants who go to faithfully and ordinarily do what their boss commanded them to do. But they get to the moment and each side knows this is not normal. So the men are living ordinary and normal lives, right? But the moment is extraordinary partly because of all of the racism and classism and cultural history and baggage and, and all the ways my people and your people and, and, and government and politics, because nobody fights over government and politics, right? They're right at the threshold And they give a very compelling speech. Where's your identity found? 
Is your identity found in the reasons why you should be trustworthy? Or is it just hidden away in Christ who makes us trustworthy and dependable and honest and truthful and so forth? Here they are. And they have an invitation. After giving the speech, trust this guy. In fact, there was like this heavenly angel involved. And don't worry, we didn't see it. But like, he's the boss. We got to do this thing. And Peter's like, oh, oh no, I got heavenly info also. What you're saying sounds crazy, but it also really makes sense. Come with us. That's the invitation at the end of 22. We're here to bring you back. How many times do you think a Jewish man is excited for a Roman centurion to send bodyguard and servants to, you know, bring you back to him? There's a million reasons why suspicion should be everywhere. When I think about this verse, I imagine having a moment with the Lord, and, and this is from the lesser to the greater. Peter's is greater. But I imagine, okay, I pastor a church. I've been around for a little while. Somehow somebody listens to some podcast I was on, and they're like, we think God is calling you, Kevin, to come halfway around the world so that you can speak to our pastors. And I'm like, great, where are you from? And they're like, Syria. And I'm like, see you later. Right? Like, it, like, if it was Kenya, I'd be like, well, my back doesn't travel so good. And, but like, wait, you want me to go to the Muslim world because you say so? Sure. Yeah, yeah, I'll get right on that. In fact, I have to run all these things past the session. Right? I'll use the Lord's work as a way of shrinking back from what I might be called to. Can you imagine the trepidation? There's an ISIS general, and he's really interested in your view of the doctrine of the Trinity. Y yeah, I bet he is. Bye. And here, God is up to something. And next week, we'll, we'll push further into this. But here's where I want us to, to leave it. Listen to the weight of Christian hospitality. Because Peter knows it's a day's journey away. So come on in, guys. In order to receive Cornelius' invitation, he extends his own invitation. Are these guys Jewish? We have no indication that they would be. They're from the Italian cohort and a Roman centurion. So Peter invites them into his home. Is Matt Winan in here? Yeah, hey Matt. Do you remember when you were a college student and you were listening to a group of us talking? This is years ago. He's really old now. I'm not, but he is. And I said, hey, do you want to come over to his house today? And Matt was like, what? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I think we should all go over to his house. And Matt's like, wait, in the church you can invite other people to somebody else's house? And I was like, oh yeah. He was like, I'm in. I have no idea what that means, but that is awesome. Do you remember? Yeah, like that's what real brotherhood looks like. It's like, hey, Mike, we're coming over to your house and there's nine of us. You're good, right? <laughs> You're voluntold to host us, right? That's what Peter's doing. This isn't Pete's house. Peter is saying, as guest, more guest. How many times are you willing to be inconvenienced for what God has called you to do? His timing, his resources, his giftings. So my challenge to us, the theological witness of this text so far to me is found in this desire to faithfully serve God through the ordinary means that he has provided that we would live out and speak out this gospel that we've been entrusted with. So, does your belief preserve the power and potency of the gospel for the daily living of God's people? And are you willing to be interrupted by God to follow his clear and specific instruction? Empowered by his spirit. Here's your takeaway question. Lord, what are you calling me to forsake for your name? And Lord, what are you calling me to embrace for your sake and your name? Because whatever you're called to in each of those categories is better for you. You don't lose out in the economy of the kingdom. You get God as he gives you himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks today for this work that you are doing, this unbelievable message that you have given us in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the only hope of the world. And so, God, we ask that you would make us ordinary for the work of your kingdom, that, that you would do profound and eternal things through we weak and simple creatures. Father, we ask that you would lead us this week to an, ex an honest examination of our hearts and our lives, our beliefs and our priorities. Father, we ask this morning that you would lead us to trust you as you guard and govern our lives. May we not be afraid of the sacrifices you have called us to, for in them we share in Christ all the more. And Father, I thank you for Kevin DeYoung, I thank you for his ministry, and I thank you for the significance of this thought. Lord, that one of the most important things we can do in life is to pass on the storyline of God's faithfulness to the next generation. Lord, may we look beyond the ordinary piety of Cornelius, the ordinary piety of Peter, 
that we might see the faithfulness of the true and living God. Come, O Lord, and be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree.